What would make you happy? What would make you happy? The New York Times has some ideas. Uh, don't think negative thoughts. Treat yourself like a friend. Control your breathing. You probably have some thoughts of your own. If I hit that $360 million jackpot, it wouldn't hurt my happiness, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah, seriously, right? Oh, if, if, if I had the perfect job, I would be happy. If I had the perfect spouse, I would be happy. If I had a different house, I would be happy. All of us have our ideas of what would truly, genuinely, deeply, lastingly make us happy. Well, but do you notice where many, maybe most of our ideas of happiness are found? In uh, ourselves being fulfilled? In you having the perfect circumstances, the ones you've always dreamed of? But that's just not the reality, is it? Things almost never go as planned. Dreams are almost never completely fulfilled. Circumstances in this life are never perfect. So does that mean that in this life we can never be happy? Well, the Apostle Paul challenges our thinking on this issue this morning and shows us that our happiness is tied into being a part of God's mission to make Christ known to us. Or as one popular theologian has framed it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Our satisfaction and God's glory are not separate things, but are dependent upon one another. Can we really be happy? Yes, but it's in ways that many of us don't often think. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me as we explore that idea this morning in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chair, you can find it on page 980. We've been studying the book of Philippians the last two weeks as we go through this New Testament. Episode, and this morning, we'll look at these seven verses together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good, goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? <laughs> what should be my response? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And that I am happy. If you're taking notes, here's what I think is the main point of this passage. And so the main point of the sermon this morning. The joyful confidence of a Christian is that the gospel will be advanced through any adversity or adversary. The joyful confidence of a Christian. How can a Christian have joy and confidence in this life? Because he knows what he lives for and what he lives for will be accomplished. The joyful confidence of a Christian is that the gospel will be advanced through any adversity and through any adversary. And how can we have this joyful confidence? What do we need to, to get this kind of joyful confidence in this life? Well, two points. Number one, we need to view trials as vehicles to spread the gospel. We said in verses 12 through 14, we need to view trials as vehicles to spread the gospel. And number two, we need to live for Christ's glory and not our own. We need to live for Christ's glory and not our own. We see that in verses 15 through 18. First, we need to view trials as vehicles to spread the gospel. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, where we've been the last couple of weeks, the Apostle Paul has dispensed of the customary opening greeting and opening expressions of gratitude and prayers that we often see in his letters. He moves on now to informing the Philippian church about some matters. And look at verse 12. Paul wants the Philippians to know something. You see, knowledge is necessary for the Christian life. Christianity is not just feelings-based, and neither is Christianity dependent on a kind of weak, abstract, fluffy faith. No, feelings and faith are based on facts, right. on the knowledge of some things. And so Paul, even from prison now, feels the need to instruct. He knows the truth he's about to pass on. He's learned the lesson, I know, and now he says, I, I want you to know. Right, that's something of what Christians do, isn't it? Amen. We don't just accumulate knowledge of God and his ways to keep it for ourselves. No, we freely share what's been shown to us. Right? Those who have been taught teach others. That, that's something of the roots that begin to build a culture of discipleship. I, I love how those roots have been built and are being developed here as you all teach others and share with others what you're learning and have learned in God's word, right? I pray that that kind of culture continues where you learn and you are shown things and you share with others. Paul wants these Philippians to know something. He wants to teach them something. And his main lesson here is that trials are not dead ends for the gospel, but are rather cul-de-sacs. Trials don't cut the gospel off from going out elsewhere, 
Rather, trials allow the gospel to circle around in the place, the vicinity of the trial, and then send the gospel out onto others. You know, a dead end keeps that thing from going anywhere. A cul-de-sac, you go there and you circle around, you drive your car around to all the houses, and then you go back out. Well, that's how trials are, Paul says. They don't stop anything. Rather, you go up in that trial cul-de-sac, and it allows you then to circle around and touch all the people in the vicinity of that trial, and then send that gospel out elsewhere to go out. I mean, look at how Paul puts it. Paul says, I, I want you to know, he thinks about trials, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance or propel or put the gospel outward. That's Paul's main premise. And what has happened to Paul is that he's been put into prison. I mean, in verses 13 and verse 17, Paul talks about his imprisonment. And Paul's present predicament locked in a prison cell has likely caused concern for the church in Philippi. I mean, they are worried for the Apostle Paul's welfare, worried about his physical and his mental and his spiritual state. They're also likely worried about the state of the gospel that Paul so popularly and proudly preached. I mean, would the spread of the gospel be put on Paul's while its most enthusiastic proclaimer lay behind bars. I mean, that's a fair assumption. Many great movements are interrupted or ended when their front man is put on the shelf or he leaves. I mean, the Chicago Bulls, first three pre uh, championship run in the early 90s, was put on pause when their best player and the best player in the history of the NBA abruptly retired following his father's death. The Chicago Bulls' second three-peat championship run permanently ended in the late 1990s when its best player and the best player in NBA history <laughs> permanently retired. The R&B group Destiny's Child was popping for quite a while in the late 90s and early 2000s. They were pumping out hits after hits after hits. Y'all can name them, Bills, 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 Survivor, right? But the hits stopped and the group ended when its lead singer, Beyonce, bounced and decided to go solo. You see, you take away the top dog and the whole thing crumbles. It's what happens with so many movements, with so many organizations. And so it's a safe assumption that the Philippians thought, well, you take Paul away and the whole gospel goes away. That's the conclusion that, that Paul's enemies had, enemies to the gospel had. Sit Paul down and shut this whole Jesus movement down. I mean, when Paul was first in Philippi, when he first took the gospel in Philippi, that was the aim of the enemies of the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, verses 20 and 21, we read that the town leaders concluded that Paul with his gospel ministry was disturbing the entire city, teaching things that were against Roman customs and practices. Their response, Acts chapter 16, verse 23, they inflicted many blows upon Paul and threw him into prison. That's how you stop a movement. If you want to stop a movement 101, first thing, sit his leader down, put his leader to the side. 
but you know the story. From prison in Philippi, Paul and Silas started an impromptu prayer and praise service. And the ultimate result, a Philippian jailer got converted. What happened to Paul initially at Philippi really served to advance the gospel. And now here's Paul writing 10 years later in prison. Again, this man can't seem to keep himself out of jail. But he's really in hot water now, not just in a leading city of Macedonia, a kind of Roman province of Philippi. Now he's actually in the capital city itself in Rome, the great city where the emperor dwells. But notice Paul's posture in writing back to the Philippian church. He doesn't talk about himself at all. Paul doesn't say, I, I want you to know that I'm struggling in here. It's cold and dark in this small cell. The food is terrible and the rations are meager and these guards are mean. Paul doesn't use the occasion in the slightest to throw or invite people to a pity party. Even though the language he uses almost lends itself to that, doesn't it? I mean, look at it. What has happened to me? Those words, what has happened to me, have often been used by many of us to live in and languish in a kind of perpetual victimhood. Satan loves to use suffering to sink us in our sorrow, to keep us sedentary in our suffering, stuck, spiritually paralyzed because our situations are so bad. But see how this verse explodes that notion. God loves to use suffering to speed ahead his word and his work. We learn here that circumstances are not masters, but servants in service to a sovereign God. Circumstances are not masters, but rather servants in service to a sovereign God. I mean, look how Paul says it. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served Served who? Served a sovereign God for his purposes. Circumstances are not determinative and they do not hinder God nor hinder us from doing God's will. You see, Paul saw prison as a place that God placed him in and thus as a place for him to do ministry. And his main ministry? Making the gospel known. And look at how it happened. Verse 13, Paul says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard was the special kind of elite troop of guards serving the great emperor Nero in Rome. Many were employed to keep watch over the emperor's prisoners. There were Thousands of them. These guards would, would rotate shifts on a four hour rotating basis usually so that Paul would have seen many cycle through during his stay in prison, no matter how long that stay was. And, and when the imperial guard came upon old Paul in his cell, Paul has something to say to them. But it was different. 
Paul didn't secretly ask them to, to slide the key to the cell so that he could be released. No, Paul boldly told them the key to life so that they could be released. Released from the bondage and burden, the penalty and power of sin. Released from the unending judgment of God and enduring his wrath forever in hell. Paul told them the good news of Jesus Christ. How the eternal son of God became a man to take on men's sins and to die in our place so that we could forever be forgiven and freed by God our father. So that we who repent and believe might have eternal life. Paul wanted it known to all these guards and all the other prisoners in cell and all the rest in Rome who heard about this popular prisoner who was not afraid of anything, that his imprisonment was for Christ. Not just because he was speaking about Christ. No, for the sake of Christ. His imprisonment was in service of Christ. Paul said, oh, no, I am put here for the very purpose of making Christ known. For the sake of Christ making himself known, even in these prison walls. Saints, see the great mercy and love of God here. To allow these prison guards, serving under a kind of false king who demanded to be treated like a god, Nero, to allow them to hear of a true god and a true king, who became a servant and sacrificed his life for their sake. How kind of God to allow guards and inmates to hear the gospel. The only message under all of heaven by which men must be saved. And God put Paul there in prison so that they could hear it. And friends, God Put you in your hard job, in your rough marriage, in your crime-riddled neighborhood, in whatever adverse condition you might find yourself in, so that those around you could hear the gospel message. To advance the gospel through you. You see, Satan wants us to view our predicaments as God punishing us. But the Bible opens our eyes to view our painful situations, not as God punishing us, but as God pursuing them. God pursuing that hard hearted husband or wife. God pursuing that wicked boss. God pursuing that disrespectful neighbor or those disrespectful students. God pursuing that cancer doctor. God pursuing those fellow radiation patients. God pursuing them through your presence in their lives. You see, none of us end up where we are randomly. For a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, there's no such thing as chance. You are where you are, hard as it might be because God put you there and God put you there for a purpose you see Paul is not just spouting his personal experience here Paul is giving us something of a doctrinal statement here that God is sovereign over all things including suffering oh yeah us reformed Christians like to talk about God as sovereign but when we experience some suffering, something had to have gone wrong. 
No, Paul says God is sovereign over all things, including suffering. Suffering is not just something that randomly happens. Suffering is something God brings about to bring about his good purposes. Friends, that's the story of the entire Bible. I mean, Colette read it for us earlier in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph, who had been sold by his brothers into slavery and had ended up in a prison like Paul in Egypt, only later to be exalted to be the second most important person in the most important empire in all the world. At the exact time when all the world was experiencing a famine and people were perishing for lack of food. And guess who comes on the scene? The very brothers who sold their brother Joseph into slavery now need food for them and their families and their fathers to survive. And who is exalted to give it to them? Oh, Joseph in Egypt. So that Joseph, as he looked back on everything, doesn't just say, man, things finally worked out. <laughs> right? The ball bounced to the right, right place. No, Joseph says, you, you brothers, you meant it for evil. But God, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. It's the same thing we see 2,000 years ago when Satan plotted through the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers to put Jesus Christ to death. The most humiliating and most excruciating death that one could imagine, death by crucifixion. They all intended it for evil. But God intended it, meant it, designed it, used Jesus' suffering and death to bring about that many people should be kept alive. By his death, he purchased eternal life for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in the crucified and risen Savior. What happened to Jesus really served to advance the gospel. What happened to Paul really served to advance the gospel. So, saints, as, as Christians, a better way to view life is through the lens of not just what's happened to you, but rather what might happen through you. Don't just live in, oh, what happened to me? Yes, what happened to me is hard, but I know God loves me and I know God is using me. So let me just flip that script, not to try to diminish the pain, but to trust that God is using the pain. What might happen through me? How might God be using your hard situation? Whether it's sickness or disease, whether it's a difficult marriage, whether it's singleness, whether it's the mounting burdens and demands of being a mom, things that might feel deadening some days and restrictive, it's okay to admit that. Things that might feel like they're keeping you from being as fruitful a Christian as you would be otherwise if you had more time and more opportunities like other people have. How might God be using you in those situations to bear fruit? to bear witness about his son Jesus in both word and deed. How might God be using you in those situations to embolden others to bear witness about Jesus in their difficult situations? That, that's another way Paul says the gospel is being advanced through his situation. 
Look at verse 14. He says, not only have the prison guards and the prisoners heard the gospel, but also others have heard the gospel as other brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And thus much more bold to speak the word of the gospel without fear. Paul's model of boldness for Jesus, even as he's been locked up for For talking about Jesus strengthens and encourages others to be bold for Jesus. And notice these others aren't apostles or pastors. They aren't super saints who we expect to be super bold. No, Paul says most of the brothers. All right, the the term really includes brothers and sisters, family and Jesus, regular Christians, regular church members. They might not have had the same training as Paul. They did not have the same direct face-to-face Damascus Road experience with Jesus as Paul did. But they have the same Holy Spirit that Paul has. And the same spirit that emboldened Paul in prison to keep speaking about Jesus resides in them so that they too can keep speaking about Jesus even with all the rising pressures and persecutions. You see, we need evangelistic models of courage. We need to learn from those models and later learn to become those models. And if you need models, just learn from people around the local church. Right? Look around our body and see what models of evangelistic courage are here. I think of our brother Joe going to Panera in Clinton and talking to people about Jesus or standing on the sidewalks near his job to talk to people about Jesus. The brother is bold. Let his boldness not just be Joe's thing. Right? You don't have to do the same thing, but let his boldness stir you up to boldness. I think about our dear sister Naomi, who's been here a number of years. And we had this back-to-school event last week, and one sister was leaving the back-to-school event and she was speaking very friendly to Naomi. Like, bye, Naomi, it's so good talking to you again to see you. I said, okay, do y'all, y'all know each other? And she was like, no, I just met her. And she was like, but she's been talking to me the whole time. And she uh, said about Naomi, you've got you a strong ambassador for Christ there. What a blessing, Naomi. I, I pray you're encouraged by that. Right? We're encouraged by you didn't know this, sister. Right? You was like, I'm going to eat. She's over there eating. I'm going to go to her and not just eat, but talk about Jesus. There's a level of boldness there. Right? We need to be encouraged by other brothers and sisters' boldness. Study other church members. Study other Christians from the past. Read Christian biographies of missionaries and martyrs who endured great suffering and yet proclaimed the gospel. Read about George Lau, who was a former slave and was released and then made it his life's mission to go to Jamaica and release people from spiritual bondage by preaching the gospel to them as the first ever missionary from America. Read about Adoniram Judson who suffered miserably through much suffering, who lost many wives on the mission field and refused to come back in order to make Christ known. Read about Lottie Moon or Amy Carmichael. Read Read about other Christians from the past who have endured pain to proclaim Christ's name. Read and replicate. They are men and women of like flesh as we are. 
and dwelt by the same Holy Spirit, who sought simply to obey Christ's command to spread the gospel, and like Paul, did not allow predicaments to derail them. We need to view trials as they did. We need to view trials as Paul did. We need to view trials as God does, as vehicles to advance and spread the gospel. What else do we need if we are to have confidence and joy in the Christian life, even in the midst of adversity and adversaries? Number two, we need to live for Christ's glory and not our own. We need to live for Christ's glory and not our own. Paul is just saying that his imprisonment has been used by God to, to get the gospel out. The guards in prison have heard it, and many Christians at Rome are now more bold to proclaim it. But, but in this latter group, the emboldened Christians, Paul says there are two subgroups, two subsections. Look with me, with me at verse 15. Paul says, some in this group indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And notice here, there are two groups, but one gospel. Verse 14, most of these brothers and sisters are bold to speak the word. And Paul clarifies, what do I mean by speaking the word? Verse 15, preaching Christ. Verse 17, proclaiming Christ. And notice Paul's view of preaching and of ministry here. It's not about preaching self. It's not about sharing your personal testimony. It's not about talking about all the cultural issues going on. It's not about advancing a specific agenda. The main message that should be dripping out of Christians' mouths is the message about Jesus Christ. That's instructive, isn't it? Maybe even corrective. Because what many consider a bold Christian witness today often includes just some loud bravado about some political issue or political candidate or some cultural issue. Those things might have their place, but what Paul sees as what should be the main content of a bold Christian witness is distinctly Christian in that it distinctly highlights Christ, the Savior, the only Savior of the world. Many professing Christians, social media timelines are filled with loud tirades about this or that issue. But at the same time, many professing Christians have comparatively little to say in actually professing Christ, whom they profess to follow. They're really bold. You hear all about this and that and this and that and this and that. They're super bold. But when was the last time you told somebody about Jesus? You're supposed to be a bold Christian. You are bold, but where's Christ in your Christianity? You see, Paul says, you know, what bold Christians do, many more are emboldened to proclaim Christ, preach Christ. That is what Christians are often supposed to talk about. Right? We, just, we don't just preach the gospel. That's not the only thing we ever say, but this is the main content of what we should say. 
message here is the same between these two groups, the gospel about Jesus Christ. But what differs here between these two groups is the motives. That's important to note because Paul will go on in verse 18 to rejoice. But he can only rejoice because Christ is actually being proclaimed. I mean, elsewhere in places like Galatians, Paul pulls no punches. He has no problems calling out a certain group of people for believing a different gospel. They get no love from Paul, only condemnation. Paul will not rejoice when folks are preaching a different gospel. Paul can only rejoice when people are preaching the right gospel, even if it's from the wrong motives. In verse 15, Paul says, some preach Christ out of motives of envy and rivalry. He expands in verse 17 and says, this group proclaims Christ, but out of selfish ambition, not out of sincere motives, but seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They ministered, but in doing so, had some sort of personal animus toward Paul. They ministered, they preached Jesus, but not just so that people could get saved, but so that their names could ring out. So, so that their ministries might make it on TV. Uh, right? So that they would be exalted and Paul would be put down. I mean, we out here preaching the same message as Paul and better. <laughs> right? I mean, look at all the success we have and look at all the inroads we're making. And by contrast, look at poor old Paul in prison again. They acted as if they were in competition with Paul. However, this other group of believers see themselves not as competing with Paul, but as co-laboring with Paul. Paul says at the end of verse 15, this group preaches Christ from goodwill, doing it out of love. They had deeper, better motivations, a deep love for God and a deep love for God's apostle. They knew that Paul wasn't in prison for some personal defect in his ministry, but for the very reason of defending the gospel. They knew God put him there for a purpose, and this group used that purpose to be strengthened by Paul's witness to themselves go outside of prison and proclaim the same gospel as Paul. Nonetheless, again, look at Paul's response in it all. Paul, Paul didn't enlist those with good motives to defend his honor and shut down this other group. No, Paul doesn't seek to protect or defend his rep. Paul doesn't seek to delegitimize others. Paul rather rejoices. Why? Verse 18. Because whether it's by good motives or bad motives, whether it's in pretense or in truth, Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. What Paul most wanted above anything else was Christ's name to ring out, for Christ's gospel to go out, for Christ to get the glory that he alone deserves. And as long as that was happening, Paul could genuinely be happy, even in prison. Friends, that requires a lot of humility. Because you and I know from personal experience that you can endure and put up with almost anything just as long as it doesn't affect your reputation. Just as long as it doesn't change other people's view of you. And you can deal with the most painful situation better than you can deal with a personal slight, a personal offense. Somebody put you in prison? Okay. 
Well, somebody put you down. Oh, it's on. But for Paul, life was not about defending himself, but rather the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Jesus was so big in his heart that all that he wanted was for him to get the shine, even if it came at his own personal expense. We need to grow to get there, don't we? I need to grow to get there. I mean, I can sometimes preach a sermon on Sunday mornings here. What I feel is a bad sermon for all kind. I mean, I'm Monday morning quarterbacking that thing in my mind all day. Like, oh, that was terrible. Why did I say that? Oh, it was way too long. People were falling asleep. If you fall asleep right now, wake up. Right? <laughs> and, you know, I can, I can preach what I think is a bad sermon. And, and my mind first goes to what do people think of me? Not what do people think of Jesus? I can regret that I didn't preach better more than I can rejoice that even through my fumbles, Christ was proclaimed. You see, even as genuine Christians, there can be a temptation to do ministry in order to get an honorable mention with Jesus. Jesus and me are great. And if we don't get that shine, while others do, <laughs> yeah, we pout, we complain, we're sorrowful, we're resentful, we're bitter. I mean, let somebody you've witnessed to or you've discipled talk about people who've led them to Christ and who've helped them grow in Christ and not mention you. <laughs> what happens in your heart? Let the church down the street stay packed. Yet week after week, you come in and find only empty pews. What gets conjured up? How do you react? Oh, you know, all the big churches just secret sensitive anyway. That's the only thing they're doing is preaching what people want to hear. All of them? Really? Is there any room for rejoicing in your hearts? When it's not a rejoicing over you. How can we cultivate? How can we grow a greater joy in Christ being proclaimed than in our names being made much of? A few ways. Number one, meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the great love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he's displayed for you. He is the star of the show. All you and I contributed to it was the worst part, our sin. But out of love for you, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He saved you by grace. You didn't earn any bit of your salvation. You didn't seek out Jesus. You didn't pursue Jesus. You weren't thinking about Jesus. You didn't work to get saved. He did every single thing for you. He sought you out and saved you. And rescued you from the pit so that you might have him forever. Meditate on the gospel. Meditate on Christ's love. Meditate on Christ's love and his work for you. And allow that to shrink your own competing desires to be made more than them. Number two, pray for proper priorities. Pray that you would decrease 
and that Christ would increase. Pray that Christ and his gospel will be your singular passion in life. Number three, pray for other churches. I mean, that's why we do that every Sunday when we gather together on Sunday mornings. We are not in competition with other churches in PG County to win a hoodie award for best church. We are on the same team with the same goal. We are on team Jesus with the goal of Jesus getting the glory that he so rightly deserves for his work on the cross for sinners like us. Pray for revival to break out as we did earlier this morning in the pastoral prayer. And be happy if that revival breaks out at the church down the street from us and not here. Be happy because Jesus Christ is proclaimed. To that end, number four, commend other ministries and other people. That's why we so often point people to other churches that might be closer to where they live at. That's why we point people to other churches where at a specific point or season in their life, they might grow better at. We don't have the market on real gospel ministry. Thank God that Temple Hills Baptist Church isn't the only church where you can hear the gospel about Jesus Christ. The Lord is at work in other places and Jesus is proclaimed in other places. Now, before we close, we do need to point out a, a few caveats. Paul is not meaning here to diminish the need to have right motives in ministry in this passage. He's not saying, yo, yo, it's cool if you preach Jesus out of jealousy or to compete. No motives matter. God looks upon and sees the heart. But Paul is saying here that motives might not be perfect, might not match the message. And yet, even when that's the case, as long as Jesus is properly being proclaimed, there is reason for joy. Second caveat here, Paul is not commending every church that just preaches Christ. Paul is not saying, for instance, hey, who cares about the messages and the ministry practices of a church that preaches the prosperity gospel? As long as Christ is proclaimed, I'm good. And now again, Paul's framework here is that those who are preaching the gospel both adhere to the one and true biblical gospel. Something like the prosperity gospel. Something like we talked about this morning in Sunday school, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine. It's something that Paul would put in the category of how he addressed the Galatians as a different gospel. That's to say just because a preacher or a priest or a church preach and say the name Jesus does not equal proclaiming Christ. No, truly proclaiming Christ is to proclaim the good news of Christ that demonstrates the glory of Christ and makes fellowship with Christ the goal. It's a ministry that exalts Jesus. Things like the prosperity gospel only lift Jesus high enough to lift you up out of your sickness, to lift you up out of your financial pit, and to lift you into perfect health and financial freedom and prosperity. It makes Jesus merely a means to another end rather than both the means and the end. Paul wants Christ proclaimed fully, truly. There's a narrowness there. You have to proclaim Christ in the right way. 
But even within that narrow field, again, notice the big heartedness present. Whoever rightly proclaims Christ, wherever that happens, and even whenever it might not match with right motives, I rejoice. Because Jesus Christ is praise. And friends, he will be. God has vowed to be glorified in his son. God has promised to push his plans forward to ultimate fulfillment. And amazingly, he does it through us and through even our painful predicaments. So that we can have real joyful confidence in the midst of any adversity or any adversary. Because we know that the gospel will be advanced and we get to participate in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy it is to belong to you and to be used by you to advance the name of Jesus. Oh, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. The only name under heaven by which men and women can be sanctified to look more and more like Jesus. Oh, we pray that you would transform our thinking so that we might see all of life's problems even, all of life's pitfalls and predicaments even, uh, not as punishments, uh, but as you using us to pursue others, you growing us to fill up the afflictions of Christ and through us advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us the rest of today and this week to see every single situation you put us in not as a hindrance, but as a help to proclaim Jesus Christ. We pray to that end that he would get honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.